This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome, folks. Dr. Charles Parker here, and we have a guest tonight that is going to take us right down to street reality some personal experiences that will really begin to change your mind. If it isn't already changed from listening to others here at Core Brain Journal, change your mind about mental health, where it is, what that whole idea of mental health and stigma means. Uh, let me introduce tonight is going to be Mike Vini. He's in New York City. Mike, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Chuck, and hello to your listeners out there. So Mike is a very interesting guy. He has a very big CV. He's a leading mental health uh, expert speaker and get this, a high energy drum circle facilitator. We're going to ask him about that. <laughs> he delivers educational, engaging and entertaining presentations to meetings and conferences throughout the world. And one of his main subjects and one of the reasons we really want him to come on by and talk with us is about the stigma regarding mental health and his own personal experience as a child, working his way through a variety of mental health experiences which were not entirely constructive. Yes. <laughs> so Mike's perspectives have, have been featured on ABC, NBC, and CBS News. Yep. He's a regular guest on the Fresh Outlook TV news show. He's a writer for Corporate Wellness Magazine, HealthCentral.com, and Mental Health is an Asset. His compelling TEDx talk has been used in college classrooms and has received sensational reviews because he's asking some very, very relevant questions about how do we deal with individuals who have what, whatever you call it, where there's a measure of imbalance going on. Are they sick? Are they well? He really talks about the pathologizing of human beings. That's a whole other concept. So with that, Mike, Please tell us a little bit about where you are and what you're doing before we get into the drum facilitation topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm in New York City right now, and I have a very interesting job where I get to travel the country and, and meet people and speak at events about this very uncomfortable subject of mental health. Even though it's getting so much more popularity in, in the media, it's still an uncomfortable subject for people. And I am like you in that, you know, people can call it whatever they want. Uh, some people talk about mental illness. Some people talk about just wellness. Some people just talk about the brain. Whatever it is, it, it's a subject that people are very uncomfortable with. And one of the things that I'm trying to do in my recovery to continue to grow and heal myself and learn about myself is to share about my experiences and things that I'm learning and share that with others in order to give them practical tools to help themselves with it. And the interesting thing about me is that I am also a drummer. Um, that was my career for many years, being a professional drummer. And when I started speaking about mental health, a lot of the event planners found out about that and basically were like, hey, can you bring your drums? And that actually led to build my business uh, being a corporate drum circle facilitator and getting to do drumming with people at events too. Well, now tell us about that. Now we're there. I'm thinking about an Indian ceremony somewhere out in Idaho 
with Sioux warriors around uh, a, a, a pit. So what's what's going on? Tell me a little bit about that. Well, that, that's an interesting image. You know, you say the word drum circle or interactive drumming event, and everyone has a different image what that is. And my particular events are more like a kindergarten classroom for adults where we get to be playful with each other. And one of the reasons that I do my drum circles is that people struggle to connect with each other. And that's actually one of the reasons why we are talking today is because internally people struggle to connect with themselves. And that also leads to externally people struggling to connect with others. Mental health issues and people issues go hand in hand. So my drum circles are more of a kindergarten style classroom activity for adults that gives them games and fun activities to empower them to really bond with each other. Mm. So tell us a little more about the particulars, if you don't mind, uh, sure. so we can catch that picture. Sure. Well, one of the things that I realized is that when you get a, a bunch of people in a room, um, everyone's uncomfortable. Even the extroverts are uncomfortable. And it's a three-part process that I use. One starts with getting people to feel like they belong. And I actually have them do fun um, icebreaker games <laughs> where they get to be silly and actually everyone starts to feel like they belong because everyone's acting like a fool together. And as I'm saying this, I'm realizing this is my job. Yes, this is what I get paid to do, ladies and <laughs> gentlemen. And, and what that leads to, when people start to feel like they belong in, into something, it leads to them naturally starting to bond with each other. So we start then doing lots of drumming rhythms and exercises where they have to work together with each other. For example, I might have one side of the room play a rhythm and the other side of the room play a different rhythm with the goal being they have to come together and make them sound like a third rhythm that doesn't exist yet and it's interesting to see people do that because everyone thinks well I'm not a musician or I'm not a drummer this is supposed to be a fun little recreational workshop but the interesting thing that always happens is that they always come together and sound like a professional drum band it always well, that's happens. interesting that's yeah sounds very interesting yeah, and, and so that's what I really walked them through. And ultimately what I found is that you start with the belonging, that leads to bonding, and ultimately it leads to people believing in themselves and the group as a whole. And it's a great process that you can apply to any group situation. Well, you can see them coming out and having a real connectedness with each other, having going through that mutually, and it's an activity. And there's yes. a mutual respect and there's a communication going on even though they're not using the uh, nine to five words. Exactly, and also I wanted to say this, it allows, especially adults, and actually e even youth too, to be childlike. And we have an allergic reaction to the thought of being childlike in, in our world. We associate that with being immature. Mm -hmm. We associate with that being foolish. And teaching people to be childlike and open up the curiosity can it really allow people to let their guard down? And it's a mm -hmm. beautiful process to watch. Yeah, I agree with you. I uh, had the good privilege of hanging out with uh, Dr. Edward de Bono years ago, and he's one of the world experts on creativity and developing developing uh, new ideas. And uh, he, he had the same kind, he didn't do the drumming experience, but he has a, a way of thinking that brings people together. And, and really, you do have to regress a little bit to take away the facade when you do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's just, you know, going back to the work you're doing with, with the brain, 
I think it's important for people to let their guard down if they want to start exploring things. One of the highlights of the whole drumming experience when I do these events is how people talk about the rest of their day going afterward. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Tell us about that. Well, for many people, they feel a sense of clarity. They feel like it's just easier to go about the day. And it reminds me of something that I've learned in my own recovery, and that it's important to be intentional about doing things to be uh, to take care of yourself in order to set yourself up for a good day. And it's something that's an afterthought in our society. Well, that's interesting. So then do you do the drumming uh, first thing in the morning after breakfast or even before breakfast when you... When you're at a conference, or how does how does that work? Well, generally they have it at well at some point. Sometimes it's first thing in the morning. They usually do that when they want me to wake everybody up. <laughs> but sometimes it's in in the afternoon. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's on a retreat in in the evening. But I think the timing isn't as important as the fact that it's an intentionally focused time where we have to be intentional about working together and bonding. And if you think about just life, how it works for most of us on a daily basis. Rarely are we ever intentional about bonding with someone else, even those of us who are extroverts. So I think it's a really cool activity for that. Well, how did you get into this? Now, you know, I, I'd love it if you'd tell our, our listeners a little more about who you are as a person, because you have a very interesting, compelling childhood experience. That's that's a nice way of saying <laughs> I, I have some issues. I got some issues. 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 <laughs> I, yeah. That is the word. I, I'm 37 years old, and I have struggled with mental health and behavioral health challenges uh, throughout my entire life. And to sum it up for you listening out there, um, I was very explosive as a child in my behavior. I, I would just act out, and, and, and I would become very violent, very aggressive. I would snap. And, and for many years, I, I didn't know why, and I'm still learning why. And that led to me getting hospitalized in a psychiatric hospital uh, three times for extended periods. And when I wasn't in the hospital, I was a regular in the emergency room because I was in crisis. I was also expelled from three schools uh, for my behavior. And I tried to take my own life um, at age 10. And mm. I was regularly self-harming. And that's, that's a lot of stuff right there that I wow. just said. I mean, you and yeah. I probably spent several episodes talking about each <laughs> yeah. of those. But, mm -hmm. but, but the, the, the challenge for me was, was my, my thoughts, my emotions, and, and my behavior. I really struggled to get control of them. And one of the few things that really worked to make me feel better was actually not the medication they were giving me, but drumming. Whenever I, I, I took out the drumsticks and, and played the instrument, it felt so good, and it calmed me down, and it centered me. And I stayed with it throughout school. And it's one of those things where you know, your parents really wish you could just pick a different activity mm -hmm. <laughs> because uh, <laughs> no one wants to get playing drums. Yeah. And so um, I decided to become a drummer and, and, and start working as a drummer um, even as I was in high school because it was something I was excelling at, but it was also my medication. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons why I still have it in my life today and why I think it's the only medication you can just share with other people. Well, that's so interesting. Now, do you actually play professionally? Are you in a band or what, what's that part of it? For many years, I was playing professionally, doing a lot of freelance work in New York City, uh, some recordings. 
And I actually stopped a few years ago to really focus on the mental health stuff. But lately, I've actually been getting back into it, working with some different musicians. So it's something that I'm going to be doing more, but my travel schedule for speaking just makes it almost impossible. Yeah, they, <laughs> to, yeah. You know, you know, consistently play at a venue. On a yeah, they need basis. a person there to, to do the rehearsals and, and, and get, the, get the game together, I would imagine. Yeah, but, um, you know, I do uh, keep practicing and stay on top of my skills. And if I had to sight-read some music tonight, I could totally go out and, and do the gig. Fantastic. That's, that's, that's strong. You know, I played yeah. the trumpet when I was a kid, and I could not do that. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> I have not kept up with it, and I was not good at it. So that, that's yeah. what happened. So then, now, when you actually had the problem with the hospitalizations, one of the things that you said in your uh, bio as, we, as I was reading it is you talked yourself out of the hospital. Now, if you could tell us about that, that, would, that must have been a, uh, at once a grueling and, uh, and, it, and a relieving experience at the same time. It was. You know, mental hospitals or psychiatric hospitals, whatever you want to call them, are, are very interesting places. And those of you who are listening who may have been in one or seen one, they're, they're just very interesting places. You know, in one sense, they are created to help people who are struggling get better. But in another sense, just the way they generally look and feel and the procedures you have to go through make you feel like you're getting punished. And, and the one thing I noticed right away when I was hospitalized is here I was in, in fourth grade in this place with green walls where my shoelaces are taken from me and I'm behind all these locked doors and I can't have any of my toys or, or things that made me feel good. And I felt like I was in jail. It felt like a prison of some sort. And so, you know, for me, I just wanted to get out of there. I knew why I was there. I knew that my behavior got me there. And the doctors kept telling me, you have to develop coping skills. And so basically, I figured I just need to be convincing enough to let them know that I have coping skills. And I learned very quickly, the secret to getting out of the psychiatric hospital is just to be very convincing and persuasive that you've got the coping skills you need. And you're okay. And you're okay. <laughs> and, they're, and, they're, and, they're, and you're not in danger. Now, I was doing the math quickly in my head. You said you had a suicide attempt when you were 10 years old. Was that the first hospitalization? No. Um, I was actually hospitalized before that um, in the fourth grade and fifth grade. I, I, I was one of those kids that matured faster than the girls. Usually the, the girls go first yep. in puberty. Yeah. And, and I was the real tall boy. And so I think that also contributed to naturally what happens in puberty, mm -hmm. uh, very confusing, very extreme emotions. Mm -hmm. And I really sank into some severe depression. And I just, I was done. I was done. And, and I feel like when it comes to suicide, something I want to share that I've observed from others that as people, we like solutions. You know, if, if there's something wrong with my car, I just want to get it fixed. You know, I, I don't want an explanation. I just want a solution. Just yeah. let me fix it. And I was so, so sad and just so angry and so frustrated with the confusing feelings, the overwhelming feelings that I was feeling. I just wanted to end my life. And so I came home and, and decided to, um, you know, overdose on, on medication. And if it wasn't for my mother getting me to a hospital to get my stomach pumped, I wouldn't be talking to you today. Mm. 
So what was one of the most inspirational uh, turnaround points, even though you were in a situation which wasn't entirely appealing to you, what were the pieces of that experience that, that helped you find yourself and get on, get on out of there and, and, and be the person you've become? Wow, great question. Um, two things come to mind. One thing were the actual staff members in the hospital, not, not the medical staff, not the doctors, not the professionals, not the social workers, but the, just the hospital staff that basically had to just be there and hang out with us. Um, the value of the human connection, you know, mm -hmm. lots of laughs with some of these people. And, you know, you don't realize how much that really helped someone who's struggling to be able to just sit there and laugh or share a story with them. And, and treat you like a human being. And the other thing that reminded me of uh, uh, something that changed was, was, was a quote, actually, that I was in 10th grade. It was my last hospitalization. And, and I think it was the teacher there that was teaching us for school. And she said something about you never fail until you stop trying. And I had just felt like a failure. Because, you know, when you struggle with mental health issues, mm. um, you know, you, you feel like a failure sometimes, you know, and, and they're overwhelming and they're confusing and they're frustrating. And I think that contributes to the stigma because we as humans don't like to be frustrated and confused. We don't, mm -hmm. we want answers. And, and, and when you're dealing with the stuff that you're dealing with, one of the reasons, you know, your work is so successful, and again, I'm very grateful to be on here today, is because mental health issues are straight up confusing and frustrating. So true. That, that is very true. And having some clarity, it's almost like that quote was kind of a Zen moment for you. It was. It was a transcendent, a transcendent remark. Well, it, it was because it made me realize that I just have to keep trying. I just have to keep making an effort. And you know what? I have rough days now. I have breakdowns sometimes. I, I have a wonderful therapist who will, will be there for me when I'm in crisis and, and talk with me on the phone. And you know what? The thing that moves me forward more than any technique is, is, is this reminder that I just have to keep trying. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the hope that I hold on to. Well, you know, action and positive action and a positive attitude that you can go somewhere by trying is imperative in that. It's, it's, it's in that remark. It's, it's buried in that remark. And, uh, yeah. you know, it sounds like that's what you, what you did. And then somewhere in there you got the drums together. Were you doing the drums at the same time? Yeah, it's funny. When I was in the hospital, one of the things I would ask for are my drumsticks. And the way it works in a psychiatric facility for your own safety is, you know, you're not allowed to just have everything that you want. And of course, they didn't want me having drumsticks because, you know, if I was unstable and, and, and at a risk for acting out, I could simply use the drumsticks as a weapon. Mm -hmm. But um, as I started to get my behavior under control as, as a kid, they let me have drumsticks under supervision. And it was like the greatest thing to be able to sit there and just, just play along to some music on my drum pad or do whatever with the drumsticks, that just made me feel so good. And again, better than the group therapy, 
better than the therapy sessions with my therapist, better than the medication they were giving me. The drumming just really centered me. Well, it probably gave you, at the risk of sounding somewhat psychoanalytic, I apologize, but it, it, it gave you a sense of mastery in, an, in a situation which was regressive and uh, not permissive regarding your being masterful with yourself. I, I think you're, you're onto something. And, and, and I, can, can I maybe say the word control? Yeah, that, yeah. That, that it gave me a sense of control over, you know, a situation that was out of control. And for, for those of you listening, you know, who want a perspective on this, you know, for those of us who struggle, everyone's got a different way of, of articulating what their struggle is. And my struggle is just, you know, my struggle and my experience. But for me, mentally, my thoughts become so confusing and so overwhelming that it affects my body physically. It mm -hmm. becomes physically painful. Mm. And, and to have a sense of control, like you just said, is something that's really important for me to do to keep myself moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and control, it's funny because control is such a mixed word in psychiatry because the immediate uh, thought about the word control is that, hey, you're going to try to control me. You want control <laughs> of me, you know. And, yeah. and really what you're really looking for there is, is self-management. Mm -hmm. And I think self-management then has a different, what you're talking about is self-management. Yes, it's yes. control, but it's self-management. When somebody says self-management, it's so much more reassuring. Oh, all he wants to do is good self-management. Hey, we can support that. Uh, if he wants control, I don't know. <laughs> that's a totally, totally, you're right. And, and, and that's, that's, I've never heard that word. Like control that. is a bad word, you know? <laughs> no, it, it is. Well, you know, the other thing, too, that, that I thought of is one of the things that I, I still struggle with, I mean, even yesterday, is a thing called emotional dysregulation, where the way I, I describe that to someone, the way I experience it for me, is that, you know, if you just, you know, come up to me and, and or if you come up to anyone and pinch them, not that you should be pinching people, Chuck, just <laughs> yeah. to make that clear. Thanks, thanks um, for <laughs> that advice. <laughs> <laughs> to everyone listening, no, I don't just do that. But, you know, if you go to somebody and pinch them, they might go, ouch, why did you pinch me? You know, that hurt, stop, go away, whatever. But if you come up to me and pinch me, it feels like my body's burning. So basically, the emotional translation to that is that when I have an experience of maybe rejection, maybe of shame, embarrassment, frustration, I feel it much more intensely than the average person and yes. for a longer duration. And it's really, really distracting yeah. and yeah. it's confusing. And so, again, going back to what you said, self-management is something that I'm really, really learning. And I feel like I'm still in the infancy of, of learning how to do that. So parallel, let me ask you a question. So parallel to that pinch thing, are you also sensitive to heat and light and noise and things from the outside that uh, you can't really insulate yourself from? Um, generally, I, I, I'm okay. I mean, if noise gets too loud, like what am I saying? I'm a drummer. I yeah, love yeah, noise. Yeah. <laughs> well, you I, love synchronous noise. But one thing I have become very, um, I get very anxious about, and that becomes a trigger, is when something is approaching me physically that is in my space and I'm not comfortable with it or I'm not aware of it. For instance, I live in New York City. Somebody has a dog, and the dog just you know, comes up to me and starts sniffing me. 
that really is a, is a trigger for major anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, in all seriousness, a little kid, little four year old the other day, I'm sitting in the park. He's got a remote control car. He's playing with his new toy that he got over the holiday. Yeah. The car starts approaching me. I just get nervous because I don't know what that is. And and so I'm not really sure where that comes from or if that's even a part of like what you're asking about. Mm-hmm. But that's probably the only like sensation physically that really causes an issue. Yeah, I, we're, we're really talking about the same thing. So what you're saying is your whole personal boundary issue is, is an, an important issue for you. And that would have been one of the problems of being in the hospital because you're thrown into close approximation with a lot of other people doing other things. And yeah. then how do you weave your way through that successfully without feeling uncomfortable and jostled in ways you don't want to be jostled? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I wish I wish you would have been there to speak up for me. <laughs> I would have been happy to do it, brother. Yeah. <laughs> so the next question then is when you, as you move on down the road, so your main activity now is, is really kind of a consultant regarding what happened to you as a child. But then I, like, I want to get into the, the concept of stigma a little bit because that would then shed an additional light on this conversation because that, of course, is the negative view. Yes. of whatever you experienced and who you are as a person. So let's talk about stigma a little bit, if you can. Sure. Um, you know, it's interesting. Stigma is a word that is thrown around a lot. And one thing I always like to remind people is to, you know, look up the dictionary definition of it. And one of the definitions in Webster's Dictionary is a mark of shame. And mm. one of the things that I tell people is that when we deal with these issues, whatever you want to call them, mental illness, uh, mental health challenges, they're confusing and they're frustrating. And a lot of us feel a sense of shame. We feel a sense of shame around them. We feel a sense of shame if someone in our life is struggling with those issues. And it's something that has become a real problem. And I believe, and this is something I've observed for myself, that stigma is actually a cycle that it's more than a definition. It's a cycle that begins with shame. Uh, the shame leads to silence. So I feel ashamed. I'm not going to talk about it. And that yep. could be my own issues or you're my friend and you're struggling. I don't want to talk about it. And the silence leads to sabotage, self-destructive behavior, and at its absolute worst, suicide. And I believe that stigma happens for a few reasons in my observation. I would love to hear your feedback on what I'm about to say. Uh, Number one, we are tribal people by nature. And you can see that in in little kindergartners, how they they socialize on the playground. And one of the ways that, that kids socialize is by learning who is in the group, and who is it? And I always bring this uh, up with people and talk about sneakers. So let's just say, Chuck, you and I are in a group with someone else, and you and I both have Nikes on, and we're kids. And the other person has, dare I say, Reeboks. <laughs> we are going to probably, as, as kids, call them weird. And that's the thing that kids first learn is who's weird and who isn't. Mm-hmm. And that's a form of being in the group and not being in the group. And throughout our lives, as we continue to grow, we all want to be part of the group at some level. Even the introverts who don't like people want to be part of a group at some level. And when you think of mental health challenges, we think about that's weird and no one wants to be 
weird. And that's something that I've learned. The other thing that I said before is that they're confusing and frustrating. And we as humans want solutions. You know, if something happens with a, with a terrorist attack, God forbid, and it just seems like a regular thing that just happens in our society, one of the things that happens in our culture is we want answers. We want to know why that happened. We want to know who's at the bottom of this, and we want to stop them. We want answers right away. And when it comes to mental health, and for those of you that are listening out there, I want you to remember that you can't find quick answers. It's, it's a journey. It's a process, not a destination. Well, and apropos, you're saying a lot of things I'm having reactions to. Uh, I don't know if I know I'm on video with you. I'm sitting here thinking about it. But, you know, the whole thing of uh, weirdness is really an important thing for me and my practice and the way I think about people because uh, individuals do have exactly that preoccupation about themselves, precisely what you said. And we know that out in that schoolyard that you're talking about, uh, one person could say to another regarding the Reeboks, uh, you're out of it. You're out of it. And meaning, and one of the things that I think is important here is to look at that the person's out of the reality at that moment that is the group-supported idea of the correct reality. Correct. Okay, that's an important point because that person is a standout outside of the group notion that this is the reality that a person should be in. Mm -hmm. And that group think is a problem in psychiatry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because then what happens is labels are just completely studded with groupthink. Yes. Because that person, if they're in that label, they're 100% that person. So if they have a symptom, they're 100% that person. And that same thing goes on because what we like to do is codify human beings to simplify the process of having a relationship. And the, yes. more, the more immature a person is, the more they're going to codify. That's why kids are so busy with Reeboks, which are totally meaningless. But they're saying, somehow, I'm insecure with you doing Reeboks because you're not thinking the way I'm thinking. Correct. It's, it's the epitome in childhood of groupthink. So then they yeah. say, you're out of it means you're, you're just out of what, where I am. Now, one other thing that happens, and this goes all the way back, forgive me for getting a little deep here, but... And, and you'll like the book that's on the front page of my website uh, called The Obstacle is the Way by a guy named Ryan Holiday. Mm -hmm. And in it, he's talking about the Greek and Roman philosophers, specific, uh, specifically Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius, talking about change and dealing with adversity and obstacles and how you face obstacles and adversity. A guy like you would love those bo that book because he breaks it down very well. I don't know, have you read the book by any chance? I have not. You would, you would love it because you're, a, uh, you're obviously an intelligent guy and you're thinking about these issues of weirdness and labels and, and uh, you know, being out of it or in it and stigma. You would love the book. But anyway, okay. back to the bottom line is what goes on with us as human beings is change itself is uncomfortable for us. So because we are uncomfortable with change, that's part of the reason we band together, because we might not be able to handle it ourselves, but if you get a good wingman with us, then we can handle change. Now, if that wingman doesn't look like he's going to be a keeper, like he's going to help us work to fight off the mastodon, we may just have to kill him. 
<laughs> because we're running in primitive times, even today. If that yeah. person isn't right there exactly doing what we think he should be doing, and he's quote-unquote out of it, and desynchronized in some way with the change that we perceive ourselves that he, he may not perceive, he may not be in that same um, change reality. So he's out, of, he's out of context, he's out of sync, and therefore he's out of it. And the result is so many people get labeled that way, certainly it's going on in psychiatry. I got a little deep there, but I thought you might get a kick out of it. No, thank you. I, you know, I, I, I think you're right, and I love what you said about the primitive brain. You know, we, we are, we are hardwired a certain way. You know, you, you know so much more about that than, than myself, and I think that really comes up. And it goes back to what I said to you in the beginning of the whole conversation about the drum circle. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I love doing the drumming events is because here we have, let's go back now to the whole group thing. We have a group, once again, where everyone is welcome and everyone is focused on being intentional about belonging. And mm -hmm. that's just not the way we work in society. And that's where, you know, the stigma comes through. You know, keep in mind something else about labels. Something I've, I've realized is that you know, we need to categorize things in our heads. That's part of survival yes. on a day-to-day -day basis. You yes. know, I have to know what, what is left, what is right, how, how, to, how to get to places. So we naturally do that. The one thing I think people need to think about is when we're just doing that automatically without thinking through it. Absolutely. Well said. You know? and, and again, there's no, there's no right or wrong on there or a line. It's just important to think through that, and what I have found uh, for myself is that, you know, my experience with stigma was that I always say it's like a backpack, a heavy backpack that I would wear around with me, and I'd have to worry that if you and I became friends, and you found out about my history and my struggles, we might not be friends anymore. Mm -hmm. Or if I was dating a woman, and and God forbid she, she learned about my history, I was going to be that psycho that she was not going to go on any more dates with. So mm -hmm. it was a really heavy backpack. And so what I decided to do, so you know what, I'm just going to just say, screw it. And I'm just going to tell everyone about it. <laughs> and just and, and, and allow you to have your response. And I always share this one story that um, I spent an entire year seeing what would happen if I introduced myself to every single person I met and simply say, hi, my name is Mike Vini. I'm mentally ill. I just wanted to see what would happen. And yeah. we're talking CEOs, we're talking yeah. executives, yeah. Um, it, yeah. it did not matter. And the funny thing was, not a single person ran from me or punched me. Um, a few people cried. A few people got frustrated with me and said, Mike, why are we talking about this? I'm mentally ill too. Um, <laughs> I actually got hired for more work invited from to more parties and hit on by more women than I ever have in my life thank you <laughs> it's the authenticity See, because they don't have to guess about you right you know they're reassured that you're real because you're just as real as you could be in, a, in an occasion when you don't really have to be that real yes you're actually stepping out of the moment and saying look I'm gonna tell you I'm a very very real guy and I'm gonna confess this thing about myself right here in front mm -hmm. of you and then you take it or leave it. And yep. they're like, oh, okay, well, hey, that's what it is. Let's talk about it. And yeah. uh, so that would be a situation in which the change that's taking place 
when you're meeting another human being mm-hmm. is reassuring because the opportunity for fantasy that would be tied up with the stigma and the label is ab- absolutely diminished by your authenticity. Mm, that's a great way of putting it. You see I what like I'm that. I like that. So you, that's a, you don't the back them into a corner. You're actually giving them a wide open path to connect with you. And they could choose, the, the, then the burden's on them to decide whether they want to be with you or not because you've told them some of the most profound and challenging things about yourself and they can either, if they want to go on, so be it, not a, not a problem because you're okay with it yourself. Yes. Well, and, and I love that you said that. It, it just it's, it's a much more eloquent way of saying, uh, in my mind, taking the elephant out of the room. And the, the other thing I wanted to say is that Here's the beautiful side to that. And, and for everyone listening who might be struggling or know someone who is, I want you to really hear me out here. Once I got comfortable sharing about myself, that took so much of the burden that I was feeling off of me. Mm-hmm. And it made it so much easier to work through my challenges. Because now, when I'm having a rough day and a friend reaches out to me, I don't have to hide. I don't have to avoid. I can just say what's going on and just continue working through it. And that makes it so much easier. And it's also made it easier for me to get help because I'm not worried. Yeah, yeah. Well, you and, and you are who you are. If yes. something comes at you, they're not making up anything in their mind about you. You've, you've diminished the possibility of speculation. Yes. No, absolutely. This is, and this is who I am. Take it or leave it. That, that's it. it. It's taking the elephant out of the room. And, you know, the other thing is, but forget mental health for a second. One thing I always, uh, you know, bring up is that other groups have done this throughout history, you know, to, to say, look, this is, this is who I am, whatever that may be. And that has reduced other stigmas. And I just believe that, that mental health is one of those frontiers where people just really need to get comfortable. It's kind of like having a common cold. I don't know, maybe 500 years ago we would have had this podcast and and this was about the common cold, the thing that nobody wants to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I'd be getting on the show with you crying because, you know, my nose has been running. <laughs> and it, we can laugh at that now, mm-hmm. but you know what? At a point in time, there was a stigma possibly around having a cold, you know? And, and, and so my point is we have to... Be intentional about making this normal conversation. That's so true. And I, and I think it's very valuable uh, insight for our listeners to think about it because people out there have problems. You don't have to have, quote unquote, you don't have to be, quote unquote, mentally ill to have a problem. You mm-hmm. can have some things. Now, some of these problems are going to be so intense that you're not going to talk about, you know, hey, I was sexually abused as a child. Right. Because that's just too overwhelming because a person doesn't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. But if you say, hey, I've had some problems and this is who I am, then it's a little more um, acceptable because it's not so uh, intimidating to have. Here's a, here's a burden that I'm giving you that I've got this big problem. And I just want you to know what this big problem. It's almost like the person then feels an imperative. What in the heck am I going to do about that? <laughs> right. And, you know, it's. It's funny. This is the first podcast where I'm going to say this, actually. I am finishing up a book, and one of the things that I'm covering in the book is this exact thing. Because let me clarify and say that by sharing 
and getting comfortable having the conversation does not mean you need to disclose every detail. Right. And so I think it's important for those of you that are listening that are thinking about, okay, maybe I should get comfortable talking about this. Yes, you also have to think about the context that you're talking about yeah. it and how much you are comfortable sharing. So that's very, very important. So thank you for bringing that up. Well, thank you for uh, amplifying on it because I do think it's important. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, just what we did right there is we say, look, there's a complexity to this introduction thing. And one answer is no information about the person. Another, another point of view is additional information that you ordinarily wouldn't share. But there are, hey, friends, there are balances in that you don't want to share everything because some of that is going to be intimidating because by sharing it, there is the potential of an imperative that you're delivering with the other person, you have to take care of me. Yes. And and that's something that people who have trouble taking care of themselves, it's a burden for them to even think about. It's like, it's too much. I mean, I have trouble taking care of myself. You don't know this looking at me, but I have trouble taking care of myself. So I sure as heck can't take care of you. And, mm. uh, you know, that's a whole nother thing. The implicit, the implicit drive to help each other out can be profoundly amplified by saying, here's the problem. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I'm loving this conversation, by the way. Thank you so much. And I, I was going to say, if you're, if you're in New York at some point, we, we definitely got to hang. Well, I look <laughs> forward to it. Well, you're coming down. We're going to say this right now. In fact, it just reminded me, because we were talking about this offline. I'm going to have it in the show notes. You're going to be down in the Virginia Beach area somewhere in March, did you say? Uh, yeah, I'm going to be in March at the end of March. I don't I, again. I don't know where in Virginia off the top of my head, but I'm going to be speaking at the National Association of Social Workers uh, Virginia chapter event. I'm going to be doing a lunch and learn that's about drumming, and the workshop's called Drum Up Your Feelings, and mm -hmm. it's uh, for social workers. But I think you know they are still have registration open if people want to register, and we can put the link in the show notes and all that. Good. And it's going to be a real exciting event. Sounds like a lot of fun. If you're down in the Virginia Beach area, I'll definitely look you up and try to get by there. And, and uh, maybe we could do a little uh, talk a little further about some of this because I think it's been so interesting. Yeah. So, Mike, listen, we do, uh, we've run out of time here. Listen, we've gone a little further than we usually do because it has been so interesting. I think it's really important that an individual like you who's been through so much, you know, three hospitalizations, all these different things suicide, whatever, self-harming, whatever you were doing there, and, and, and actually taking it out to diminish the, the fears that people have about, number one, coping with it themselves. That can, it can, you can cope with it. But the other thing is for the rest of people to like, hey, this guy's okay. Uh, I can still have a relationship with him anyway. We need to get rid of these preconceptions about people that have problems. It's as simple as that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you very much. Now, give us a website. Do you have a website for us before we go? Sure. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about me and my work, I have a ton of resources available for you on transformingstigma.com. Again, that's www.transformingstigma.com. Sounds like the theme. It's very, it's very, you know, it's great. I'm glad that we were able to get down and, and cover it before we got done. So, cool. so. Thank you so much, Mike, for coming on board, and I hope we get together here in March. And uh, bless you, buddy. Hang in there. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Cobrain Journal. 
We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.